Welcome to Inside College Admission, conversations with admission leaders about matters affecting the college going process. My name is Peter Van Buskirk. Today I'm pleased that we are joined by David Hawkins, who is the Chief Education and Policy Officer for the National Association of College Admission Counseling, a really important position that, that gives uh, him a rather unique perspective on everything that's happening in the college going process. So welcome, David. Thank you for having me, Peter. I'm glad to be here. It's, it's good to have you with us, and I think I've got a ton of questions I'd like to ask you today, but before we get into the, the meat of that part of the schedule, for our listeners, could you maybe provide a, a, a thumbnail sketch of what the National Association of College Admission Counseling is? Oh, certainly. We're a nonprofit membership association, and, and our two big groups of people that belong to, to NACAC, as we call ourselves, are, on the one hand, professionals who work with students on the high school side. So, you know, you have your school counselors, your college access advisors, your independent educational consultants. And the other big group is the college admission officers. So we really are, are dedicated to that transition between high school and college. And uh, originally, we're organized around a, a set of uh, ethical principles, which we still maintain to this day. So that's one of the big ties that, that binds all of our members together. But we've, of course, grown over the years to include things like more traditional associations offer, such as education and training, networking, and, and professional advancement opportunities. We've, we, we've become a full-service association and grown to, to now the, at the point at which we have more than, more than 15,000 members today. So. Now, NACAC, the acronym here, is, is a group of which I've been a part for 40 plus years as well. So it has been a big part of my life. But again, from the perspective of just understanding better what this group does, is this sort of a regulatory agency? Does it set rules and guidelines? Does it penalize members for stepping out of bounds uh, or, or is it providing more guidance in general direction? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Peter. And, and the answer is the latter, of course. We, we, we are here to provide guidance. We're, we're here to, to educate. We're here to help, help people get their, their students to where they're trying to go. For a long time, we did enforce our ethical code. And I suspect we may talk a little more about this later, but, uh, but we've had to change that orientation lately. And so we have moved from a more of an enforcement posture to a best practices posture. And, and that's something that, that is a relatively recent change. And I suspect it will take our members some time to, to get used to that new role. Well, why wait? Why don't we just dive in? The Department of Justice had some things to say about that, that ethical posture that we take. How would you kind of summarize that, that discussion and, and the outcome? Yeah, well, the Department of Justice a couple of years ago opened an investigation into NACAC's ethical principles on restraint of trade grounds. And specifically, they identified a few provisions in our ethical code that appeared to them to be sort of protecting colleges from competing against each other. In essence, they, they felt like the colleges had come together and created rules that essentially helped minimize competition for them. And uh, some of those rules, of course, included things like recruiting students who had already committed to other institutions, going out and soliciting transfers from, from other institutions when the student hadn't necessarily uh, initiated the contact. So there were, there were ways in which the department felt that our ethical code essentially inoculated college and, and universities from the kinds of competition that, that they felt was important to our economy, uh, you know, to our, our restraint of trade laws, et, et cetera. So the, short, the short-term effect of that was that we took the three provisions out that they were concerned about. Uh, two of them pertain to what we call poaching, you know, the, the recruiting students that were already committed to or enrolled in another institution. The third one was about the restriction we had on offering incentives to early decision applicants, uh, that we felt that if you were offering incentives to students, you needed to make them available to students who were applying 
no matter what the the the, the decision type. Uh, they felt that was also a restraint of trade. So we dropped those three provisions. But the longer term effect was that we looked at our exposure over time. The the fact that perhaps there were more provisions on the books that could be subject to those rules, the restraint of trade rules, that is. And then we just were were unsure about how a future might play out where, you know, where we were constantly having to do extensive legal work to figure out what can we enforce, what can't we enforce, what might we get in trouble with. It it the opportunity cost and the actual cost seemed to 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 snowball pretty quickly once we started envisioning a future that looked like that. So our board and our, our leadership decided to to move away from enforcement and, and move towards having these ethical principles still in place, but having them as best practices. So that's where we stand now. And all of that came about because the Department of Justice took an interest in, in our humble association, which, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, Peter, but when I think about uh, antitrust law, I tend to think about Railroad monopolies of the 1800s, or or banking monopolies, or things like that. I, I don't often think of groups like NACAC. Well, and it, it gets complicated, obviously. And and you think that the the ethical guidance that that NACAC had developed over the years was really designed to help colleges and universities play nicely, if you will, in the recruitment of students. And now for the government to step in was a little unseemly, I think, for many people. Now, on the, on the other hand, I think the uh, the whole industry, if you will, of the college-going process has been very unregulated in its, in its whole, whole history. So this is perhaps a, a first attempt at, at that type of regulation. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I do think that uh, as we as we stated in in our, our recent ad hoc uh, committee on on leadership in college admission report, you know the Department of Justice took sort of took an angle on on our profession on our on this practice uh, that we certainly had never really considered. I mean, we as you said, we felt like our rules were designed to really to protect students first and foremost. Certainly, the design was not to protect institutions from each other, uh, although that was a that was a side effect of a number of them. And and I have over the years been fond of saying that that NACAC played a self-regulatory role so that in the unbridled competition that could develop in any market, consumers and students could be the ones that end up getting getting hurt the worst. So I suppose that angle has always been there, but but from, from our perspective, it's always been about protecting the students. So, you know, we're just going to have to find new ways to do that in this in this new non-enforcement or post-enforcement future. Well, okay. So let's follow up on that. If, if we're imagining the protection of students, how do you, in the first year of this new ruling, uh, how do you see the changes as affecting students in this process. And clearly colleges and universities have had to redefine the way they accept and enroll students. But do you see um, from 30,000 feet, do you see any benefits inherent to this for the students? You know, the the benefit that certainly that the Department of Justice articulated and, and one that, you know, that we can only hope will play out is that students will end up getting better offers, more offers of, of financial aid, you know that that competition among colleges will serve to to ultimately benefit students in the end. Now, again, you, when you think about two things, the first of all, the the fact that we are at the thirty thousand foot level, so it normally takes some time for us to sort of hear about what's happening out in the field, and the fact that we've had a pandemic that just came in and wrecked everything. Right now, you know, we are we are still in the, and probably in the wait and see area. I think the the one thing that I I certainly have have noted and, and that the organization has noted throughout this this whole process was that our biggest concern was 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 with the students who were already 
sort of on the short end of the equity stick. You know, well, it, it's possible that some students may get larger financial aid offers and, and larger institutional aid packages and things like that. But our concern is that those students may not be the ones who need it the most. And so that's that's where we kind of have our eye long term. We want to see how this whole thing plays out. And and right now it's it's maybe at this time, if, if we hadn't had a pandemic, we would know a lot more about what students were experiencing. But as has happened, the, the freight train of COVID-19 came through and it's it's put this what I consider a very important question on the back burner for a little while. Well, indeed. And, and uh, I'd like to kind of take a stab at the long-term implications here as well. There's been discussion uh, in our circles in, in recent months about the demographic cliff that seems to be approaching. The, the notion that the DOJ has stepped in to kind of loosen things up and, and created more of a competitive environment for colleges, we're perhaps moving into a demographic scenario that will resemble a, a buyer's market, if you will. So there's going to be a lot more competition for a limited number of students. What do you see happening? Is this, is this going to be a free-for-all, do you think? Uh, or do you think we can contain ourselves and, and continue to play nicely? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And, and one of the things that I always think of right up front is that as our institutions compete, as, as our institutions venture out into the market and try, try new ideas, one thing that's always going to be a very important factor to consider is reputational impact. As I really try to step back and look at the whole marketplace, I, I do think the answer, the short answer to your question is yes, we could be in for some real hard scrabble tactics and, and sort of cutting edge tactics that, that institutions resort to to try to appeal to a larger number of students. Perhaps, uh, certainly as we've seen the market mature over the years, you know, their, their, their targeting metrics and their, the practices that they use to really focus in on the markets that they want will become more important, but, but will also change. But as I step back and look at the whole picture, one really important consideration is that with, with our rules sort of off the table now, there's two other players that have kind of lurked in the background that, that our colleges have had the luxury of not having to worry about too much. One is state and federal regulators. You know, if colleges step too far out of line, you can bet that state and federal legislators are going to be lined up to, sit, to draw lines for them. And I think that as we you know, as we counsel our members, as we as we talk about why it's important to, to stick to good ethical practice, I mean, one reason is that kind of, you know, you want the carrot and the stick, that's definitely the stick. And, you know, the fact that the state and federal governments have been looking very closely at, at, at recruitment practices, particularly in the for-profit sector, means that it's not a great leap to move over to the nonprofit sector. In fact, we have seen movement as, as nonprofits start to work more with these for-profit partners to provide things like adult and continuing education. Those same regulatory concerns are starting to move over into the nonprofit sector. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing, of course, is the reputational issue. And that is, you know, look what can happen in the media if, you, if your institution steps too far out of, out of the pale. You know, I think about the Varsity Blues scandal, which at this point seems positively quaint given the fact that we had a, you know, a seditious sort of event in Washington and we had a pandemic and we've had just about everything else one could think of since Varsity Blues happened. But the fact of the matter is the, the public eye is more or less always on college admission and, and it can get more critical as, as we go forward. So those are a couple of really important things that I, that I sort of try to keep in mind. 
And let's tease that out just a little bit more. One of the things that has struck me over my years of involvement here is that there seem to be different rules for different players on the college and university side. And, and so often the spotlight falls on the most highly selective schools, the, the high profile institutions. And it seems that they're the ones that, that set the rules, the guidelines, and they're the ones that get all the media attention, but they represent about 3% of all of higher education. Is it, is it really fair to make assumptions about the 97% based on what we're constantly seeing daily of the, the top 3%? Absolutely not fair. In fact, you know, if, if I've learned one thing in my two decades plus here at NACAC is that the selective colleges that get got all the, the ink in the, in the news, really, as, as Bill Fitzsimmons at Harvard himself has described it, constitute the lunatic fringe. This, those are his words and not mine. In, in, in more, perhaps in more diplomatic terms, you know, they, they really are an outlier in this whole equation. And they really do represent, at least as they're presented in the media, a distortion. I, I should say the media and the public consciousness, because the media really is just an extension of, of our public consciousness often. The fact of the matter is the, the 97% of institutions that, that, are, that are out there educating the probably 99.59% mm-hmm. of students really go sort of unheralded in the first place. And, and secondly, the fact that, that they educate so many people and, that, and you get so much out of them. You know, we all see the list of famous people that, that went to the Ivy League schools, but the list that went to the other 97% is probably 100 times mm-hmm. longer than that, than that Ivy League list. And, and I think we just, one of the things we try to do at NACAC is to make sure that we are right-sizing that conversation and, and making sure that it's not the actions, in fact, not just the actions of a, of a handful of colleges, whether they're Ivy Leagues or not, you know, that can, can pose a, the, the risk of, of painting the entire population. Well, this is an opportunity for us, I think, to to kind of extract from this conversation, perhaps some guidance for families, because as families get started in this process, their, their immediate thought is, well, where do we want to go? And it's to the places that everybody hears about, the top 3% schools. And, and, and it's very difficult to, to kind of redirect that thought process. One of the things that, that you and I have both seen over the last 30 plus years is the impact of rankings on the way people think about schools. And uh, I, I know there've been a lot of efforts to try to diminish the, the importance of rankings. I think implicit in the rankings is the notion that, that uh, you know, there's a number one, the number two, and number three, et cetera, that there's an absolute qualitative dichotomy here. I think that because we've been able to, to kind of change some of that conversation, a lot of institutions and a lot of families though, have found that there is a new proxy for quality and it is selectivity. So the notion is it's really hard to get into, must be really good. Everybody goes there, can't be that good. Do you see evidence of that, or is that something that's just kind of in my imagination? Oh, no, that is absolutely out there. It's, it's not just your imagination. It's, it is um, something we fight against all the time at NACAC, and it's something that it feels about as entrenched as anything can be in our society, that, that we, uh, we see scarcity as, as something that is indicative of quality. And I, and I think that when it comes to college admission, the idea that somehow the number of students that an institution excludes says something about the, the way in which that institution operates or, the, or what effect it can have on the students that go there is profoundly misaligned with, with reality. And I, I think that, you know, when I, when I talk about the rankings, I often go back to the fact that prior to the rankings, there was this same sort of sense that selectivity equals quality. And in fact, as you look at the rankings, I almost see that they're almost a codification of that 
sort of nebulous sense that, oh, selective must mean high quality. Exactly. And they've dressed up a whole bunch of stuff around it, but ultimately they're just simply regurgitating what our existing prejudices are. And after, you know, I don't know how many people will be familiar with Monty Python sketches, but there's this one sketch I always think about when it comes to the rankings, and that is the society for putting things on top of other things. And I always think about rankings that way because really that's what it boils down to. We're just finding new and more creative ways to put things on top of other things to indicate some sort of hierarchy. And some of the work that we've done at NACAC over the years in included a, a committee that we convened about, gosh, it's been about a decade now, but we looked at a lot of the research out there and there's, there's been scholars who, who've looked at the US news rankings in particular, tweaked the methodology ever so slightly and you end up getting a completely different list out of it. And what that sort of should tell anyone who's interested is that you can create any list you want to. You can put any numerical factors into the equation, you can weight them however you want to, and you'll get a unique and independent list of colleges. So the fact of the matter is there's, real no, there's no real secret to this. Well, and, and, and didn't Robert Morse himself, who was the, the curator of the U.S. News uh, rankings, admit that every year there's going to be some tweak, if you will, to the, the formula to make it better? Well, it not only makes it better, but it changes the outcome. So there's, there's a different ranking every year. I want to move into the conversation now about inclusion because there's there's real concern in our country that higher education is important, but it's not working for everyone. And, and heaven knows for decades, there have been initiatives, mostly local here or there, to try to increase participation rates. What, what do you see from where you sit? Do you, do you see this as a sort of a stalled effort, a backward moving effort forward? What, what's happening? Yeah, you know, I think it's, I think a, an accurate way to describe this is that it, it has some of the momentum that is necessary to sustain what we need to bring about true equity in higher education had started to stall prior to the pandemic. I think, you know, when we look at the pandemic, it, it, it is going to cause real harm in our equity sort of goals. We, we, we're very clear eyed about the fact that the pandemic is not going to help things. But if there is a silver lining, and, and, and I tend to be an optimist at heart, one thing I've noticed is that the issue of equity has moved front and center. Even if we're not going to make any progress during this pandemic or, or if it's slow in coming, between the pandemic and the, and the racial justice strife that we had last year, people, people are thinking about these questions now front and center. And, and there are a lot of people in policy circles, and I'll say they're bipartisan in nature, that know something has to change. We have to do things differently. So what I what my hope is, and what we we're going to try to do at NACAC at least, is to start thinking about the college access, the the equity picture with regard to college access, as starting in high school. You know, the the inequities in high school are already you know they've they're already well manifested. They're really entrenched. Students you know have have a hard time getting access to the classes they need. But what, what we're really looking at is something that's systemic in nature. And uh, NACAC recently received a grant from the Lumina Foundation to take a look at that, at that continuum, starting in high school, moving through the process, and even going and extending into adult education to figure out if we were going to redesign a system for college access that had as its sole focus racial equity, how would we do it? So our, our goal is not necessarily to say this is how the future should look or will look. The goal is to say, if that were our goal, if racial equity was our goal, this is how you'd really have to design the system. And then you compare that with the system we have and see what needs to be fixed. So what I, what I hope is that coming out of this pandemic, we will in fact gain some momentum. We will, we will have 
had our eyes peeled wide open to this equity problem and that we will be able to move on on many fronts to try to address the the lingering challenges and plus those that have been exacerbated by the pandemic itself. Within the context of, of the conversation we just had regarding rankings and the codified listing of schools, do you see that there's a potential for that kind of mentality societally to harm our efforts at inclusion? In other words, how often do you hear families or people saying, you know, that student is undermatched, you know, that student has achieved at a certain level in high school, he needs to be going to one of those top 3% schools, whereas there's a willingness to completely overlook uh, any of the other 97%. Right. Yeah, that, you know, there are so many different cross currents when you start talking about equity and you start thinking about the attitudes that preserve the existing order. You know, uh, you think about on the one hand, you have people in, in, spending millions of dollars to sustain lawsuits against selective institutions that are trying to preserve some semblance of racial equity by considering students' race and ethnicity as a factor of a factor of a factor. I mean, it, mm -hmm. you could go down that rabbit hole for years, and we've been down that rabbit hole for years and are going to continue to go through it for years. So there's this question about, on the one hand, is equity truly a goal for some people? Like, is it is it really the case that you know, that, that at that very scarce selective institutional level that, that we can even agree that equity is a good thing there because some people don't even seem to think that equity equates with academic merit, whatever that means, right? But then on the other side, you, you, what you mentioned is, is, a, is a really important issue, which is that we have to back away from this, this situation enough to be able to see that post-secondary education comes in all different shapes and sizes. It comes in two-year and four-year varieties. It comes in in, in large sort of research universities and small private institutions. And, you know, it, it, the, one of the reasons why we always try to articulate that, that the transition to post-secondary education should be student-centered mm -hmm. is because the best institution for any given student is defined as the best fit for that student. As defined by that student too. As defined by that student, correct. Thank you. As the as a parent of of a, of a college junior and a high school junior, I am right in the thick of that whole process. And, <laughs> and yeah, thank you. But no, that is that is the way we need to be thinking about higher education. The more we think about it as grouping them into, you know, the haves, have-nots, better, best, not so great. You know, we, we have to get away from that value judgment and, and try to figure out what's best for the student. Labels can be incredibly limiting in that regard. Uh, but you, you've talked about the different types of educational opportunities that exist in this country. And I'd like to kind of segue into that discussion. The recent political climate, the campaign climate included a lot of discussion about creating free opportunities for students at uh, community colleges and even some articulated uh, students attending state universities at, at no or, or little cost. How, how feasible is that from where you sit? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a two-part answer. The first is the conventional political wisdom, which is that it's going to be very difficult to implement a free college plan. Two reasons for that are, number one, you know, you've got this environment here where talk of new spending is just feels like it, you might as well be trying to, to lug a planet up a hill, forget about a boulder. So there's a political disconnect that, that we have that prevents us from, from really having a serious discussion that about that. Good, but might not be realistic. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's sort of the conventional wisdom. The, the, other, the other piece of that argument is, is, of course, that when you talk about free college, you're talking about 50 different state 
systems of higher education and the federal government. So you've got 51, let's let's say, just including the, the states for now, different approaches to funding higher education. So it is a it is a logistical challenge, right? So that's what makes it less feasible. But then I'm going to put my optimist hat on and I'm going to say that as a student of political science, in fact, we, it, it, we're coming up on some pretty critical issues. You know, number one, we have our economy is straining at, at its at its seams. And from what I've what I've learned at NACAC, what we've talked about for many years, the more you can educate your citizenry, the better your economy is going to be, the better your civic engagement is going to be, the better your tax returns are going to be, the less you're going to need expensive public services like prisons and, you know, welfare programs and, and, and the like. So there's a real economic incentive for us to invest in higher education and, and to make it free for, for those who, who need it, particularly, if not for everyone. The other piece of this is that you've seen in our political discourse that we're at a we're almost at a breaking point, it feels like. And certainly from, from studying revolutions and studying social movements around the world, you know, when you have a lot of people who, who have a lot of potential, but who have very limited opportunity, that's when you're in for political trouble. And I think the more we can get people from wherever they come from in the country into a post-secondary educational program that can help prepare them for life, for a career, just help them move up one step on the ladder if necessary, the better off we're going to be politically. So there's there's those economic and political arguments that that in my mind, if I'm a policymaker, I, I I'm thinking that's that's a good investment. Mm-hmm. But I know that the the demands on their time and on the state and, and federal budgets are pretty significant. So um, we'll we'll have to see how that optimism collides with the realism. <laughs> well, and, and and you make an important observation there too when you talk about creating an educated electorate. And, and quite often when families think about college and university, they don't think about the education in itself being an, an end in itself. They, they see it as a means to an end. It's, it's the way I'm going to get from point A to point B in life in, in terms of medicine or law or engineering. And I guess there's the liberal artists in us that are coming out and saying, you know, there's the way you think about things is important too. And, and that can have a real impact then on, on how we function as a society. On, on the matter of money, this, this all flows so well. There have been some some recent hints that the way families are expected to support a child financially in college might be changing. And I guess one of the, the recent omnibus bills coming out of, of the federal government has indicated that the, the expected family contribution concept, at least, may need to be revisited. What, what are you understanding about that whole conversation? Yeah, the omnibus bill that got passed by Congress at the end of last year had a had a fairly long list of, I would say, tweaks, because in the, in the grand scheme of things, they did sort of pull levers here and there, but they may create a pretty significant change in the long run. And, and I should say, the first one of the first things that people should know about this bill is most of the provisions won't go into effect for another two years. Right. That's, that's important. And rather than get down too far into the details, I mean, one of the, the changes that pertain to the expected family contribution, or EFC, were really more cosmetic than anything. The the idea that they renamed it to the student aid index. Mm-hmm. I say cosmetic, you know, cosmetics can matter. I don't want to don't want to slight any any of the cosmetics industry as I as I speak. Uh, but the idea that that a family might think that all they're going to have to pay is what this EFC is, you know, was an actual challenge. Considering the fact that that most schools have a difficult time meeting the full need of of students, so EFC might have been a bit of a misnomer. So they they went in and changed that. I think the more substantive issues that that we have to watch for is they made a they made a whole different s- sort of array of tweaks to different 
elements of the formula for, for student aid eligibility. The most, you know, the one that we've heard about the most so far is the fact that you're no longer going to, to count the number of students you have currently in college as part of your, uh, the equation that determines your, your aid eligibility. And, and you know, I, I've heard some, some concerns from the NACAC membership because a number of families do have multiple children in college. There are some, some corresponding changes that, that could serve to offset that. For instance, the Congress did tweak the uh, income protection allowance which would have the net effect of, of increasing the amount of your income that you can protect. So the, I guess the idea, and this is a pretty simplistic reduction because there were a lot of other changes in there, the idea is that perhaps one change might offset the other in some way. I don't know if it will completely offset the fact that you can't count the number of students you have in college. But I use that as an example. Those are two examples of, of many of the tweaks that they made to, to sort of say that one of the goals that Congress had going into this was to make sure that the students who were truly in need got more money out of the equation. They, their, their intent, at least, was, to, was to, to help the lowest income students the most. So where you might start to feel a little bit of the pinch, of course, is in the middle class uh, students. And we have to sort of, as we think about federal policy, we do have to keep in mind that this is, you know, that, that our first triage level is low income students. Next, we have to figure out what happens to, to everyone above that, that level. And of course, it's one of the reasons that NACAC has suggested that we need a free college system is because this, this formula, this, this whole student aid process is so Byzantine. And in the end, it still only pays for a fraction of what it costs to go to a public college or university. So we're tinkering on the, around the margins in some way when what we really need is, in our view, is at least a complete overhaul. Well, and, and I think further complicating an understanding of this is the fact that there's more than the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, which was addressed in this omnibus bill. What that form is doing with the information that's collected is helping to determine the student's eligibility for federal support. And, and many institutions will adapt that as their own methodology for determining student need. But, but then there's this other thing called the College Scholarship Service Profile, which is much less transparent and much greater in its enormity in terms of the data that it draws on. How does NACAC help families to, to make that distinction and understand that, that, okay, you finished the FAFSA, but for many institutions, maybe 370 or so institutions, you're not done. You've got another one to do here, and you won't know what that student aid index is going to be at the end. Right. Well, you know, the... Our best hope, of course, is to provide education. We often don't have as much reach into students and families directly as we do with professionals who help students and families. So our goal, of course, is to try to help our professionals know how to talk to students and families in a way that's clear and, and concise and, and understandable, or as understandable as, as this can be. From an advocacy perspective, you know, we, I, we've spent a long time trying to help primarily the federal government look at ways to simplify the FAFSA. But again, as, as we see in this omnibus bill, they're just, this is just Byzantine. I mean, this is a very difficult thing for students and families to, uh, to navigate, particularly if you're from a family who, who doesn't have a lot of college-going experience, who may not have a professional to work with. You know, this can be very confusing. And, and it, going back to your original question, I think that our best guidance to students and families, which is coming through our, our professionals, is to pay very close attention to what institutions are asking you for. You know, first, fill out the FAFSA. Absolutely, that's, that's the mantra, fill out the FAFSA. You don't do that, the rest is, you might as well forget it. When it comes to the CSS, the best, you know, the best we can do, at least in terms of information, is to let students and families know that you may have additional steps 
And if you need help with those, there's places you can go to get it. You can talk to school counselors, uh, college advisors, independent counselors, and last but not least, financial aid offices and the admission office. That's, that's a critical point that we try to emphasize. I, I guess the thing that's disturbed me in that, that whole conversation is that the two methodologies when used in parallel at, at private institutions provide different answers. I mean, they're, they're both supposed to help the family understand what they're going to need to pay. And there can be a differential of ten dollars to $15,000 between the methodologies. Problem is one of them, the FAFSA, is very transparent. You get a number, you might not like it, but you get used to it. You complete that profile and you never get a number. And so there's a lot of surprise that comes later on. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there's any discussion about how we can create greater transparency on that side of the, the analysis, the need analysis. Mm, that's a good question. You know, right now we're in a bit of a, a middle ground where our the, the ad hoc committee that I, that I mentioned earlier uh, in their report to the association, one of the really important elements of our post-enforcement era here at NACAC is, is going to be a focus on transparency. So while, while we don't have anything right now to sort of share, I do think that that's part of the future where we look at ways in which the lack of transparency is hindering students and, and maybe running counter to students' interests. I'll say briefly that over the years, one of the issues we've been most involved in here at the federal level has been the financial aid award letter. So a different sort of facet of the same issue, you know, and, and we're still talking about that with policymakers who can't understand why, you know, students aren't getting the same letter from every institution. So it's a continual struggle and it's one that we'll, we'll continue to work on. It's a heavy lift, though, so good luck with that. <laughs> Thank Speaking you. Speaking of heavy lifts, uh, recent days uh, have revealed that the college board has started to rethink some of the requirements or some of the testing that it provides to students. In particular, there's the announcement recently that subject tests will be discontinued, that the writing section of the SAT will be discontinued. And of course, over the last year, the response to COVID on the part of many institutions is to say, okay, let's take a step back from testing altogether. Young people aren't able to take the test. We shouldn't hold them accountable for that. 60% more test optional schools in the last 12 months. Do you see, again, a pattern emerging here that will reach into the future? Or do you think there's going to be a retrenchment once things settle down with COVID? I do think that we have elevated ourselves to a different plateau, and I'm not going to draw any value judgments there, but but I, since the numbers are going up, we might as well talk about upwards, right? Sure. I do think there is likely to be a significant increase in the number of institutions that stay test optional mm -hmm. uh, after the pandemic. We've seen some data from, from surveys around around the industry that suggests that institutions, you know, oftentimes the hardest part about going test optional is, is just getting to the decision of going test optional, right? So a lot of institutions were forced to that position last year. And, and I think a number of, of them will, will remain in there. What, what is less clear to me is I think probably will we'll break down along the lines that we've talked about earlier in this conversation about the, the highly selective institutions, the, the, the flagship state institutions, you know, I see some of the same dynamic when people are saying selectivity equals good. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the same dynamic with test requirements equals good or better, right? Or, or it has, says something about quality. Fact of the matter, it has nothing to do with quality at all. It's just whether the institution derives any benefit from the test, hypothetically, in predicting student success at their institutions. So I do think there may be some cases where institutions go back, but my gut says that given the fact that test optional policies do at least at some level address equity issues. Now, they're, they're not the only answer. There's, not, there's a lot more 
that we have to consider when, when we think about equity. But at a very basic level, I think institutions will have seen that the fact that tests do constitute a, sort of a derivative measure for students. They, they, they cost a lot for the students. They cost a lot for the schools that have to administer them. And we put out a, a task force report, a separate task force report on standardized testing last fall. And we didn't, we didn't necessarily say one way or another colleges should or should not be test optional. But we basically posed a set of questions that said, look, we, we know a lot more about the costs of standardized testing right now. And we know that this imposes a significant burden on schools, on students and families. It, I think it's time again for colleges to ask themselves, are, are we getting out of this enterprise what we're asking all these other people to put into it? Mm -hmm. And that question, I think, for a lot of colleges is going to end up being no, particularly after the pandemic. Well, and, and, and add to that, I think the long-held notion that decision-making can be made at any level of selectivity without tests. I mean, the, in fact, I think that there's, there's a lot of curiosity this year to see how some of those uber-selective institutions that went test optional are going to be able to plow through the, you know, the applications that they're looking at, where they're going to admit maybe one out of 15, one out of 20 without test, how's it working for you? And th th there might be some <laughs> retrenchment from, from that group. But the, the future of testing, I think, is, is uh, an interesting one. It's been suggested that the college board might be making this decision also to allow itself to maybe replace emphasis onto or enhance emphasis onto advanced placements. Do you, do you see that as an emerging possibility? Uh, you know, I could certainly see that. I mean, advanced placement seems to be operating in a different realm than the SAT suite of products. And, and I'll also say, just to address your original question about the subject tests in the essay, these were parts of the college board suite of services that really had uh, withered on the vine to some degree. So perhaps the, the pandemic has and, and, and the ensuing test optional dis discussion has, has caused them to want to prune the tree a little bit. But yeah, I, 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 it, it would make sense to, that the college board would, would want to sort of focus on its flagship products, you know, whether it's the SAT itself or, or the AP, which, you know, again, AP has a certain grounding in the curriculum that it, it is based on. And colleges look at the AP exam scores, not uh, in any sort of a unified way, of course, but but you know each institution looks at those scores to look at possible credit transfer uh, or, or or awarding credit for classes. So, you know, in a way that the AP program has has a credibility, has a I don't know a, a certain soundness that right now seems to to escape the SAT. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, it appears to me also that that the AP is kind of gravitating in some ways toward the model of the international baccalaureate. I don't even want to get into that thought process, but the IB is very highly regarded, but it's trying to replicate that across the country would be nigh impossible, at least in the short term. But isn't it true, though, that if, if there's a movement toward AP, that that infers a, another cost expectation on, on high schools? There's a training, uh, there's a certification of instruction, et cetera. There's a testing rubric that needs to be associated with the school. People need to administer the test. So we might be easing this, the financial strain in one way, but creating another strain for, for high schools that way as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that we actually address. Now, we didn't address it in, in terms of the AP program, but one point that I'll make in response to that, Peter, is that we asked the question in our task force report about the college's role in all of this. If colleges are requiring X, Y, or Z, what is their responsibility to help shoulder some of that burden? 
And I think when you when you look at high school curriculum, you could make the case that high schools are going to invest in their curriculum in some way, shape, or form. So it makes a little sense for them to invest some money and time into it. But then you have to ask the question, like, if you're bringing a program in, and I'll say off the shelf, I'm not meaning to be derogatory or, 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 or slight the AP exam, but it, but it is a it is a standard curriculum. Let's put it that way. If you're going to pay extra money for a standard curriculum, you know, how much of that is down to the school district? How much of that is down to the colleges that are recognizing that program? You know, what is the role? And, and I'll say this, that for the past, uh, I'd say, 20 plus years, the, the state and federal governments have made money available to help particularly low-income schools afford these programs. But the fact of the matter is there are still serious, serious equity problems in just hiring the teachers, getting the teachers trained, and then getting the students prepared for those classes. So we, it is, it, it, it is folded back into that larger discussion of how are we going to create equity at every level. Oh, stay tuned. Um, I would be remiss if, if we made it through this conversation without reflecting on where we have gone in the last 12 months with COVID. Uh, I've been impressed by the degree to which, at least superficially, higher education has been able to pivot, if you will, off of the news of, of this pandemic back in, in the last winter and spring. And of course, secondary education is, is, is doing the pivot as well. What are you sensing coming out of this from, from the college going process? Is it, it, obviously it's affected in some way, but what are, what are the great effects uh, on families uh, at this point that, that you can see? Well, it certainly has thrown a lot of, of, a lot of existing, uh, let's say, students and prospective students into a, a whole different way of operating. That's, that's the first most obvious thing. What's, what, is, what is interesting to me, and, 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 and having lived in, and worked here in Washington for the last 20 years, politicians particularly love to paint higher education as being a backward, slow to move, ivory tower, you know, stodgy professor sort of Historically, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. So, so they're very fond of that caricature. But based on the, what I've seen, higher education, as you said, has, has pivoted remarkably quickly on this. And in, in the long arc of history, you know, it, had this pandemic happened in the 1990s, we might have been in a very different place economically as colleges and universities. But one thing that happened really since the 90s is the proliferation of online education. This is one thing I've always, I'm, I'm one of the for-profit sector's biggest critics here in DC and people know it. They, they know if I'm showing up to the table, they, they, they're gonna get an earful. But I've always maintained that what for-profits really contributed to, to our higher education experience was not that they somehow revolutionized curriculum because they, you still have to teach calculus the same way you taught calculus 20 years ago, or at least the same principles. What they introduced was technology. They, they showed that you could, in fact, deploy technology. Now, whether you do it well or not, that's a whole different question. And they certainly did not do it very well, but that it's there for the taking. And I think in response to your question, the biggest potential opportunity for colleges and universities and for students as well is that they've now proven that they can do education online, both the colleges and the students. And so I think you're still going to have a healthy market for students who want to have the full residential experience at colleges and universities. But there's really no reason why colleges, traditional colleges now, can't consider the fact that we could enroll a lot of students in an online program to have a, a, a largely personalized experience. You know, we don't have to have this dichotomy between being physically on campus and taking a correspondence course somewhere. There can be sort of an in-between. And of course, we know that 
those models have been under development for years, but I think the opportunity for scale is there now. So interestingly enough, that in itself could could help us address the equity equation and could help also colleges and universities uh, navigate the tough economic times they're bound to face over the next few years. One of the things that I'm hearing uh, from folks on the college side is that, that my words has been a stressful, nerve-wracking experience. So it, it, it's building the plane while it's in the air kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think there's a sense that, well, at least when the plane lands, we'll be done with this. But to hear what you're suggesting, uh, there's more building that will be done and, and, and another trajectory that will be found with that newly built plane. Yeah, you know, you're exactly, you know, this, this rebuilding the plane in midair is kind of an interesting concept. It's, it's, it's almost as if you have to have a, a, an airplane that serves as a submarine as well. <laughs> right. So the fact of the matter is when you're done with this, now you don't, it's not as if the pieces that you put on there to be a submarine just evaporate. You still have that. So you can fly if you want to, you can, you know, you can go underwater if you want to. So the, so the idea I think that will be available to a lot of colleges is that they, they do have this expanded capacity. And with students and families, you know, again, the, the market for the traditional residential experience, I think will always be there. But for those who seek something a little less intensive and maybe a little less expensive, you know, there, there isn't any reason why we can't have more affordable options uh, for students who, who can't afford the, the entire, or maybe just who don't want the entire residential experience. Well, it'll, that'll be an interesting trick to pull, though, because of, I think many of the institutions that have done something in a hybrid fashion or totally remote fashion have said, well, you know, our brand is worth X and we're going to charge you that whether you're on campus doing, you know, in-class instruction or whether you're sitting at home on your bed doing this. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that develops in the coming years. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and your emphasis on individual institutions is key. You know, it's, they're going to decide what's right for them. And if they feel like that their, their brand is a residential campus, then that's what they're going to do. So Hopefully, the idea that there is a market for this will allow some institutions to thrive where they might have been looking at a very bleak future otherwise. So will there be a back to normal at the end of the pandemic? You know, I think I would be uh, the laughing stock here at NACAC and other places if I said, yeah, it's just going to go back to normal, because I really do think things will have to change for the long term. But to some degree, we may just sort of ease into this, what people call all the time, the new normal, where the facts as we knew them will never again be the same. So it's not as if we can forget the last two years. I do think the fact that, you know, we've we've seen how virtual recruiting and virtual college search can can just sort of explode, that's going to change things. And, and who knows whether it has any lasting effects. After all, students do still attend college within about three hours of their, their home. But the idea that you can open new doors and new opportunities is likely to be here to stay. Wow. David, this has been great. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of poke at some issues and, and get perspective from your position. And, and I hope that those who have an opportunity to put an ear on, on this particular podcast will, will take a great deal away, and not only an understanding of what's happening now, but what may happen into the future. So thank you for your time today. I really appreciate this very much. Uh, Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Always great. Thank you again. Be well, everybody. Be safe. And we'll look forward to the next time. Take care.